Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host and vice president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk global security as discussed at the recent Halifax International Security Forum with Scotty Greenwood, Louisa Savage, Daryl Bricker, and Ian Brody. Ian is CJAI Program Director and University of Calgary Professor. Daryl is Chief Executive Officer at Ipsos Public Affairs. Scotty is CEO of the Canadian American Business Council and a partner at Crestview Strategy. CJAI Fellow Louisa Savage is the Executive Director of Editorial Initiatives for Politico. Some context for listeners. Since November 2009, the Halifax International Security Forum has met annually bringing together ministers and former leaders, legislators, including a congressional delegation from Washington, scholars and diplomats, civil society, and uniformed members of our armed services. The connecting thread is a commitment to democracy and the belief that collective security is how best to defend it. Its programs now include the Peace with Women Fellowship Program, a leadership exercise involving senior women military leaders, and the McCain Prize for Leadership in Public Service that this year was awarded to women in Afghanistan. The Halifax Forum is a place to listen and learn. It's also a superb networking opportunity. Its proceedings and the essays prepared in advance of the forum can be found on the HISF site and we'll include that in the program notes. Look also at the public opinion survey that Daryl directs. So let's get started. Louisa, Scotty, Daryl, and Ian, and I'll proceed in that order. What were your main takeaways from this year? Louisa? Well, two main takeaways, Colin. Um, The first uh, was around Afghanistan. Uh, The first opening panel of the conference was one that I had the privilege of moderating, and it was meant to be a forward-looking conversation about what is next in Afghanistan. And instead, it really seemed to me that so many people in that room at that conference still wanted to process the U.S. withdrawal and what that means for the people of Afghanistan, the women and girls of Afghanistan, and the message that it sends to U.S. allies and vulnerable democracies around the world. It really felt like almost an emotional catharsis that people were from around the world were in the room together for the first time, many of them since COVID, and certainly for the first time since the fall of Kabul. And honestly, I don't remember moderating a panel after which so many people, especially people in uniform, came up to me afterwards and wanted to keep talking about it. This was just something that so many people are still processing. Uh, what went wrong, why it went wrong, what could have been done better, what do we do next? Um, It it was really, really striking. Um, And the other big takeaway, uh, which was the theme of of our um, story on politico.com was, you know, allies around the world and democracies around the world looking at America and and worrying, Um, worrying about U.S. commitments abroad, worrying about uh, America's own the strength of America's own internal democracy. And and that was sort of the theme of our story that um, even members of the United States Senate who were there saying, you know, we really need to strengthen um, our own democracy and internally. Um, So those were the two big takeaways I had. No, and I think those were threads that ran throughout the whole weekend. Scotty, what about you? Well, thanks, Colin. Uh, You know, I've been going to this conference since the very beginning. Uh, So I've missed only, I think, one or two in the 12 years. And what struck me is the vitality of the Halifax International Security Forum itself um, for Canada. I don't know if it's well understood in Canada how important this particular gathering is to uh, global conversations uh, among allies about peace and security and about the big issues, some of which Louisa um, just mentioned. But but the you know getting together in person is feels like a revolutionary act. Right now, it was done safely and with lots of measures, you know, uh, COVID protocols in place, but also the topics themselves, the people that participate, um, the, the challenging of 
uh, of leaders on, on some of their underlying assumptions about what, um, what works in building democracy around the world and advancing the agenda of freedom and peace. Like th these are incredibly important conversations. And I think there are only one or two conferences um, in the world that, that, that do something similar. Munich is one. Um, and so the conference itself, the convening, the getting together, the cohort that comes together, that, that's the biggest takeaway. It's, it, I don't think it's well understood in Canada and it is absolutely um, a gem, I think, in the Canadian contribution to the world dialogue. No, I certainly concur with you. It is worth every penny. It's sometimes controversial, but it, it, it works and it really does put us on the map. Daryl, you've been coming to these for a number of years and doing the polling. What were your takeaways? Uh, I just uh, echo everything that everybody else said. I, I think that uh, you know it was great getting together. I was you know very doubtful as to whether or not we'd actually uh, be there in person because it's definitely not the same event as a, as it was virtually uh, last year. It's a much better event, obviously live, and uh, it was great seeing everybody in the panels, as uh, was mentioned. Uh, uh, by by uh, both uh, um, who have already spoken were you know excellent uh, the the level of production the values that they put into everything the the the, the quality of the people that they uh, they actually have at panels and uh, and uh, the quality of the conversation I really think is unparalleled but there's also the informal aspect of getting together and you know the dinners that are held and the opportunities to talk to people that uh, uh, you wouldn't normally get a chance to talk to um, as we're all uh, cloistered there in Halifax at uh, uh, in, in, in the, in the, uh, the conversations. But the other thing that always strikes me, and, and it's, it's always interesting doing what I do and what, I, you know, what Ipsos brings to the, uh, to, to the conference is uh, the divergence between the conversations that happen in that place and what public opinion tends to be. Uh, because the priorities of, uh, of people in the world uh, are going through some really rapid um, uh, transitions. Uh, and uh, um, uh, security issues aren't necessarily at the top of the agenda, but they can find a way uh, to get into the top of the public agenda. For example, things like, for example, pandemics, uh, which, I mean, there was a certain amount of allusion to it in the, in the conversations that were taking place, but I don't think as much, uh, 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 I would say, a focused conversation about the pandemic as people are having themselves right now. So that was one of the things that we were seeing in the, um, in the public opinion research. Uh, something else we saw was that um, given that we've got 10 years now of tracking, what a, a roller coaster ride the United States has been on in terms of, um, in terms of public perceptions. Uh, with uh, um, the election of Donald Trump uh, uh, a few years ago, back in 2016, uh, the United States over, overnight in terms of global perception took about a 15 point decline. And we came in this year and saw the poll that was released. They've now actually moved back up to where they were under Barack Obama with Joe Biden. Now, what's interesting about that and what people said to me at the forum was, well, was this taken um, you know, at the time of Afghanistan? And it was like, well, it was taken actually as all of this was going on. So it shows you that even though people who are in the security business and maybe uh, are focused on doing these sorts of issues, may think that issues like that are having a big effect on you know global images and and that kind of thing about the united states it had no effect in terms of what the public was thinking about uh, what was going on in the united states in fact the the situation in the united states improved dramatically the other thing that had a, a, a fairly interesting transition was the united it was china over uh, two or three years ago when i guess two years ago when we started in into this whole pandemic it took a similar dump in terms of public opinion with the with the global population and has not come back it hasn't we'll come, come back it's we'll come back to china and, and you can talk a bit more of that ian i want to shift the question a bit to you for you because of the takeaways but this will be a question that i'm going to ask the others to comment on as well but it was one of the first outings for our new defense minister anita anand and she used it as an opportunity to give a speech and she said her first prior her priorities were i quote this First, cultural change in the Canadian Armed Forces. Second, equipping our military. And third, peace and stability at home and abroad. Given what we heard at Halifax and what Louisa and Scotty and Earl have said, has she got that right? Oh, maybe I could just take a, a broader response to that question because uh, this year, because of the year that we skipped the in-person conference, it is sort of natural to compare two years ago to this year. Whereas two years ago, I think the conversation of the democratic countries was about 
general worries about uh, Russian adventurism, potential threats from China and the Trump administration, because it's sort of an ambiguous stance towards alliances in general, was having trouble kind of uh, formulating a, 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 a united view or a common uh, understanding amongst democratic countries. This year, I had the sense that things were quite a bit different. Uh, all the conversations I had at Halifax were very detailed conversations about specific conflict scenarios. You know, the Eastern European uh, uh, representatives there were very worried about specific Russian scenarios regarding Poland and Ukraine and so forth. And then the Japanese and certainly the Taiwanese, very worried about specific scenarios of Chinese government actions in the Pacific. It, Yes, people are worried about the Biden administration. Can it deliver on its agenda and so forth? What will the democratic order look like after Biden? But we're also seeing during this early stage of the Biden administration, uh, a flurry of activity of trying to cement alliances and partnerships. And Halifax certainly reflected that this year, uh, the further development of the quadrilateral forum with uh, India and Japan, uh, the development of the Australia, US, uh, uh, UK, uh, whatever that's going to be. Um, and of course, people currently in the Pacific are building warships like Matt, dozens and dozens and dozens of warships every year with the anticipation that there will be uh, further uh, clouding of the international um, uh, balance across the, the, the Pacific. And of course, this year's Halifax Forum, we haven't mentioned it, but was really the setup to Biden's um, Summit of Democracies coming up in a, a couple of days uh, time, the last big meeting of democracies before the summit. Uh, if Canada's paying attention to any of this, there was no indication of it at the Halifax Forum. As you say, the new defense minister came, she made a short appearance uh, on Friday and then left Saturday morning. I would say my assessment is she was extraordinarily badly briefed, poorly briefed for the event. Uh, her speech, as you say, Comments about growing up in Nova Scotia, what a great place Nova Scotia is to grow up, which is nice. Uh, cultural issues in the armed forces and issues of sexual harassment, yes. Equipping the armed forces for their mission, but her discussion of the mission of the armed forces was about vaccination campaigns, fixing problems in long-term care centers and responding to climate emergencies like floods and wildfires. Um, it would have been a routine speech for a domestic audience, but I wouldn't say it laid the groundwork for Canada's role at the Summit of the Democracies. It didn't really offer any support to NATO or even Latvia, where we have a big troop deployment at the moment uh, to reassure the Baltic countries. And it just missed the Pacific moment. Uh, you know, a journalist told me that the Biden administration has spent six months sounding out the Trudeau government and found all sorts of warm conversations, but with no follow-up. Uh, the journalist said um, that the Biden administration couldn't find the Trudeau government's on button. Uh, and so, you know, Trudeau's invited to the Oval Office to make Biden's meeting with the Mexican president less awkward than it would otherwise be. My fear is that um, uh, after 10 years of building up the forum to really project Canada's uh, presence into the rest of the democratic world, that there was a bit of a miss of the, of the, the moment of a reshuffling of alliances and so forth. And I'm not sure that the minister's participation in the summit this year really harness the potential of the event uh, that other ministers have in the past. Scotty, did we miss the moment? You know, you were with the congressional delegation. You've, and we've moved from Mr. Trump to Mr. Biden. And as Ian says, certainly the, foc the, the focus of the Biden administration has been on the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, Colin, I appreciate this, this conversation and I have a huge amount of respect for everyone um, on this dialogue, including Ian Brody, who I'm about to disagree with <laughs> uh, in, in almost everything he said. So, so I don't think Canada missed the mark. The, the defense minister, uh, first of all, I don't think her appearance was too brief. She had, a, she had a long talk followed by a fireside chat, followed by an address at the dinner, you know, three, three big appearances on day one of the conference. Um, I talked to some military leaders uh, from around the world and said, what did you think? And uh, several of them said, wow, what, what a huge statement that she made about cultural change in the military. So um, I, I don't, I, I think she said what was true to her mandate and why she has this particular job at the particular time. Um, it's cultural change, it's procurement in terms of, I mean, she's also been on the job three weeks, right? So I think in terms of what Canada is doing on the world stage, that's a big question for the government. And one of the reasons why Halifax is an important 
conversation. But no, I, I don't think it missed. I, I, I don't think um, the defense minister in particular missed the mark. And um, and and to your question, Colin, the, you know what happens every year is depending on who's receiving the, the information or the speech, people think it either hit home or didn't. So here's an example. Several years ago um, at, at a Halifax forum, the US Secretary of Defense came and I was uh, happened to be seated in, in, uh, in that forum where, where we've all been in those, in those white chairs uh, in the circle. And the US Secretary of Defense chose Halifax to debut his, the US Arctic strategy. Right, Chuck Hagel, I remember that. That's right. Uh, Secretary Hagel, and his speech was entirely about the Arctic. Well, I was seated with a bunch of Israelis, and they were like, are you freaking kidding me? The U.S. Secretary of Defense is talking about polar bears or whatever the hell. Like, they couldn't have been um, more dismissive of, of the Secretary's uh, comments of the U.S. unveiling its policy. And meanwhile, I thought, well, look, at if, you, if this is your first trip as Secretary of Defense to Canada, when Canada is in the chair of the Arctic Council or the U.S. is, the Arctic's awfully important strategically. I don't think it was terrible for Hegel to make that speech. Now, no defense minister, no uh, foreign minister, no prime minister, leader, whatever, is going to be able to, in one conference, and one or two speeches cover the waterfront of issues uh, that everybody wants them to cover. So they've got to pick. And so, um, but hopefully the conference as a whole, uh, between all of the programming and the, you know, the night owl sessions and the dinner sessions and the breakfast speeches, I mean, there is a heck of a lot of content in that thing. And hopefully by the end of it, a lot gets discussed, but no, I don't. I don't think Canada missed the mark. I don't mean to be an apologist for any particular, you know, government or minister, but you know, I thought Minister Anand did what she had to do. Louisa, one of the things she did say that is Minister Anand was that the United States remains our, you know, our, our principal ally. What was your sense of what she said? I mean, I'm going to agree with both Scotty and with Ian. <laughs> um, I agree with Scotty and that should she, be interesting. Well, she wasn't too brief. There was a lot of her. Um, there, there were a lot. It felt like very much something that was written by committee and, and it covered a huge amount of ground. And I will be honest, I, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to take away from her remarks. So I appreciate Scotty's <laughs> more concise summary because it didn't necessarily, I wasn't sure what the headline was out of, out of all of that. Um, I, I really, honestly, my my takeaway was the, the conversation was really one that overall at the conference that was focused on on the U.S. on China, and you know what happens next. I mean, the thing about Halifax is it's it's a gathering of democracies and it's a gathering of people who are very concerned about democracy promotion, and it's also a gathering of countries that are looking to the United States and other democracies for help. So you end up hearing a lot from, you know, Ukraine, from Taiwan, um, you know, there are people there from Bosnia. So it's, it's really a, a conversation about how are we standing up to Vladimir Putin? What are we doing about China? Um, so that's sort of where my head was um, more than um, maybe some of the domestic um, conversation. Daryl, you know, governments are elected to sort of to choose and go forward, but they also presumably try to reflect what they're hearing from their public. When you look at Anita Nan's priorities, now, while you've said earlier that defense isn't top of people's agenda, I think, as you rightly said, it's COVID and other things, would, would that roughly reflect where Canadians are? Yeah, I would uh, actually, interesting comment about the speech. And, uh, and the interventions. Uh, first of all, let's give the minister her credit. She's pretty light on her feet. Uh, she's a good spontaneous communicator. Um, uh, you saw more of that, I would say, at the at the uh, the dinner on Friday night than you saw in the speech. The speech was uh, um, a, a stock speech that looked like it was driven by the needs of a Canadian election as opposed to one that was suited for what was going on in Halifax. And I was on a panel on, uh, on the Sunday morning uh, when they did the, uh, the breakfast sessions. And uh, I think that the reaction for somebody who was not a Canadian to what she was saying uh, was pretty well encapsulated by a, a young woman who got up in the, uh, 
and, and asked a question of the panel. I can't remember exactly who was on the panel. Ian might have even been on the panel. I don't remember. He might have been chairing the panel, actually. And she got up and she said, uh, you know, I sat through your minister's speech as Minister of Defense's speech yesterday. Uh, I heard all about climate change and I heard about, you know, issues in the Canadian military. I heard about, uh, um, you, know, uh, you know, flood issues and all that kind of thing. But I didn't hear anything about defense policy or security policy. What was that all about? So it was like, oh, the speech made sense for me from a Canadian political perspective, because it was right on the nuggets for a whole series of things that people are concerned about domestically. But here was this person from another country presenting their view of it. And their view was, what does this have to do about what this conference is about? So, you know, I, you know, I, I select your audience and you can decide whether or not that that was a really uh, uh, the best way of um, of presenting the new minister in that environment. But I will say, uh, you know, as a performer, uh, she she obviously has some skills. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot from Anita Anand in Canadian, in Canadian politics going forward. So she's, she's an impressive performer. Uh, as far as the session that I got the most out of and, and I learned the most from, like really truly shocked me how little I knew about what was being said was the one that the Vice Chief of Space Command gave about hypersonic missiles and gave the best explanation of intercontinental ballistic missiles, hypersonic missiles, satellites, and anything that I've ever heard, and completely uh, shocked me. And that doesn't happen very often uh, when I go to conferences like this. Uh, and I would say anybody who has an opportunity to go back and watch any of the tape elements of the sessions, if you can focus on what General Thompson talked about at that session, that was the most revealing thing I saw in the whole thing. I had no idea we were blowing up satellites. Uh, the, the Indians are blowing up satellites, uh, uh, you know, in, in outer space and what the, uh, what the implications of that are. Or, uh, you know, how a hypersonic missile actually works. I thought it was just like a, a missile that went really fast, faster than the regular missiles. No, that's not what it does at all. Uh, but I would say that that was probably one of the more interesting sessions that I saw. Hey, Colin, if I, could just, if I could just jump in on that, uh, I agree with uh, Daryl. Uh, a few years ago, there was a space panel that um, I became obsessed with space debris and how it was going to be the end of civilization as we know it. And I'm grateful to Halifax for continuing uh, that. I just want to come back to one quick counterpoint on what does climate change have to do with security, the question that the, the woman raised. And you know, when you understand global migration patterns and when you understand what is happening with refugees, including climate refugees, there are, and, and when you understand the weaponization that we see of refugees that's happening today, uh, uh, across the Atlantic, you, you know, you begin to understand why it is defense ministers who never used to have to think of these things now have to consider what happens to, um, you, you know, militaries are being asked to solve a whole lot of problems in the world, um, including how to deal with mass migration. And so I think it's, you know, it, I, I don't know who, who answered on the panel, what does one have to do with the other? But I, I do think, um, I, I do just, think- uh... Yeah. Respond on because sure. one of my favorite topics is this, and, I, and this is what I write about. I write a lot about demographic issues and demographic change. There may be some climate refugees. There are none. At the moment, there are none. Only about 4% of the population in the world doesn't live in the country in which it, it was born in. And only about 1% of the world's population are actually refugees. It's a lot of people, but almost exclusively. These are people who are fleeing military issues or political issues. The UN isn't even tracking anything it would call a climate refugee yet. There's a lot of speculation about what it may lead to, and that's true. But the idea that it's actually a problem that's occurring right now in the world, not really anywhere. Um, where climate really does become important, and I completely agree with Scotty on this, and I agree that the person who asked that question wasn't getting something that's really important, is what... Um, what is happening in the Arctic, which until I had gone to the Halifax Security Forum, I don't know, Scotty, you probably had the, uh, the, uh, the opportunity to sit in on some of these panels on what's happening in the Arctic as a result of climate change. That's the other presentation that always shocks me. I had no idea what was going on up in the Arctic with the Chinese and the Russians. That's all climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I've traveled to the Arctic as many have several times. And, and the most 
from the business community, the most interested uh, members that I find that want to travel there um, are the defense companies for the reasons you say. Yeah, so climate change, right, Colin, defense, getting... absolutely, together. Oh, no, I, I, you know, I, I do think that the space fund and I, um, the, the image I have was, first of all, as you say, Thompson, a superb communicator, and that analogy about the snowball that you throw and hit you, circles around, hit you in the head. I'll never forget that. Uh, but I want to move to China for a minute, because China was once again a dominant theme, and we were called upon to get in the game, and it builds on what the forum did last year, that major report, uh, stand together on China. Is this the right message? And I want to start with you on this one, Ian. I thought the, uh, you know, this has been a consistent issue at the Halifax Forum. I think the Halifax Forum was ahead of the the uh, global developments here. You know, far, the team that puts the forum together was far-sighted, you know, 10 years ago in starting to discuss um, uh, issues around uh, uh, issues around Chinese, uh, the Chinese role in the, in the global world. Um, there is a debate uh, going on about how urgent and near term the threats, potential threats from China might be in the Pacific. Recall that the uh, American Pacific commander before he uh, retired, the previous one before he retired earlier this year, uh, spoke about the potential for conflict within the next six years. I mean, arm, arm conflict, outbreak of hostilities and a shooting war in the Pacific within the next six years. I think that assessment, uh, you know, made as the fellows on his way out the door, he might be freer to speak to his uh, worst fears. Um, it was a wake-up call for lots of people, including it certainly was a, a ringing bell in, in Washington. The question is, uh, you know, we're used to over the last 70 years, the U.S. Navy being bigger than everybody else in the Pacific combined, you know, unquestioned American hegemony across the Pacific and therefore have a stabilizing effect, you know, obviously had implications pro and con depending on where you stood around the Pacific, but at least it was a stable environment. Now it's clear that the Americans are not even close to being in that dominant position um, anymore. And therefore the various alliance structures that they have to try to help um, uh, maintain an order uh, across the Pacific. It's a huge advantage to Canada as well as everybody else in that in that uh, at the Halifax Forum. It's not clear that the formula for that has quite come together yet. Uh, it's not quite clear that although you know everybody around the Pacific Rim is obviously concerned about this, not quite clear that the Koreans and the Japanese and some of the other American allies around the Pacific have sort of sorted out their issues. So. You, you see the Americans snapping back to Australia and the UK as their kind of first tier partners and then the French just first tier partners in the in the Pacific. That I think is still a, a moving picture and we don't, you know, it could be that Biden's uh, summit will have some resolution to that, but I think that's a longer term challenge. Louisa, political has said a couple of times, the one thing that both sides of the aisle agree upon in Washington is sort of criticism of the tech giants and also concern about what's taking place in China. That still holds up? Uh, well, you know, I was just looking back through the, we had a contingent of reporters on the ground in Halifax writing stories all weekend. And I was just looking through the headlines and our our space panel headline uh, wasn't, oh, wow, these missiles are cool. It was US, quote, not as advanced as China and Russia yes. on hypersonic tech, Space Force General warns. Um, so yes, I mean, in, in every possible sphere, um, there is concern on both sides of the aisle, uh, both in terms of uh, military competitiveness, the, the future of warfare, AI-enabled weaponry, all of that, uh, plus uh, on in the economic sphere, and how are we, you know, going to be making the technologies of the future if China controls all the critical minerals that need to go into batteries? Um, they're far ahead in all kinds of emerging technologies that, that we need. So um, this is, you know, I was having a conversation with a senior aide on Capitol Hill a while back who said, if you want to get a member's attention on something, put the word China in it. Um, that is, you know, a, a really big topic um, for people on both sides of the aisle, whether it's Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, or whether it's just about any Republican. Um, so yeah, that was definitely a big theme at the forum. Um, I think I was looking back to see our, our big story from the forum two years ago, 
and and it really emphasized more of a soul searching on behalf of democracies in general who were concerned about the rise of authoritarianism and the weak you know weakening of democracies internally um this year's story really focused more on on worries about the us in in particular and what role it would take in the world as china continues to grow and assert itself and as vladimir putin continues to um you know, raise the stakes uh, in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. Daryl, you've told us that the polling, China has taken a dive, but Louisa just raised a, the point about concern about where America is and is America coming back? Is, 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 is its democracy sufficient for the task? Does your polling look at that ever? Yeah, and, and we should look at the polling as a piece over the space of the last, I think it's 10 or 11 years now that we've been doing it. And one of the things that I talked about the last time that we got together um, in the, that was there in the polling um, that we do in 28 countries developed in developing markets all over the world um, was that Francis Fukuyama's, you know, the end of history, the, the idea that there's one hegemon now in the world and we only have one way of organizing human society. Over the space of the last uh, 10 years, that had started to change, where another hegemon started to rise, particularly under Donald Trump. China's reputation moved up, and the United States and, and China were fairly equivalent in terms of world opinion. And then we went through this most recent period of time, and the United States has come back up now, and China has continued at a lower level as a result of COVID, except in developing countries, where China's reputation still remains reasonably strong. So I think that there is a, a fairly interesting debate happening in, um, in developing countries now about how to organize themselves as they, as they go forward. And there's elements of both what the United States offers, but also what China offers that's both appealing and competitive that isn't at the same kind of, of uh, uh, I would say, existential level as, um, as um, uh, uh, what exists in, uh, in, in places like the developing world where these things are really seen as two competitive ways that, that, that the case isn't settled, for example, on which is a better way, the United States or China. So game on in a sense. And I will say one more thing about China. One of the things that I find perplexing whenever I hear people sit around and talk a lot about geopolitics in China is how little they know about what's happening with the Chinese population. The Chinese population is slated to decline by 700 million people over the space of the next 80 years. The population decline has probably already started. By the time we get to the mid-2050s, they're probably going to have lost a quarter million, a quarter billion people from their, from their, uh, from their population. China's got a lot of problems other than geopolitical ones. There's a lot of domestic pressure on how to pay for a really old declining population before you're rich enough to be able to do so. That's what makes China very challenging going forward because they've got problems that are very serious at the domestic level. And I didn't hear anybody mention that who was talking about China uh, during, this, uh, during this conference. No, because we often get the impression that they're 10 feet tall, but as you point out, demographic problems, climate problems, uh, growing inequality, Let's, uh, and expectations. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Scotty, I want to turn to Canada-US relationships because the congressional delegation that I know you hosted again this year had six senior senators and their visit, in my view, in some ways was a bookend to the visits that began when Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie came down the previous week and a bit to meet with Secretary Blinken and then Prime Minister Trudeau and Deputy Prime Minister Freeland, Melanie Jolie and others came down to see the president around the three amigos, but it really was a Canada-US bilateral taking stock of where we're at on the roadmap and the rest. Um, can you give us a, your take on, on the visits and the state of Canada-US relationship? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I'm not sure if it's the bookends, Colin, or if it's the beginning, the, the re-emergence of the, of the Maple Charm Offensive that we saw during uh, the renegotiation of NAFTA. You know, when, when NAFTA was threatened by the previous administration, Canada had a full court press in the United States. Yes. And then when, when, when President Biden was elected and Trump was defeated, um, Canada took its foot off the gas, you know? And 
thinking, well, we're like-minded, you know, everything's going to be okay, we, our friends are back, etc. And I think what Canada has realized is that you've got to keep your foot on the gas no matter who is in Washington. So, so you're quite right. There was a there was a big visit uh, to Washington right before right before Halifax. Previous to the North American Leaders Summit, Minister Champagne came to Washington, uh, like two weeks before that, um, and talked about how to how to uh, kickstart the Canada-U.S. relationship. Then you had the North American Leaders Summit. We had the great fortune of hosting the Prime Minister at our State of the Relationship event, along with ministers. Then you had Halifax with this congressional delegation where a number of the uh, United States senators talked about the conversations they had just had with the Canadians. So that was good. And then following that, just this week, as we record this, Colin, Minister Ng is back in Washington uh, with a couple of opposition members uh, talking, going to Capitol Hill, talking about Canadian concerns on things like electric vehicles, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, which has some Buy American provisions in it, and some other uh, trade irritants or potential irritants. So I think that the message here is you've got to keep keep it up. You've got to keep the visits going. You've got to keep them going both ways. Oh, I, I should hasten to add, since we're talking about Halifax, the Premier of Nova Scotia was just here yesterday. And not only did he light the Christmas tree, which uh, Nova Scotia gives to the Canadian Embassy uh, as a symbol of friendship, but today he's in Boston and uh, where there is another Nova Scotia tree uh, that is given to the people of Boston every year as a thank you for what the people people of Massachusetts did so many years ago uh, during the Halifax uh, explosion that happened in the harbor there. So th there, there's a lot of back and forth that is suddenly happening now, and that is important. The other, the other thing that just occurred in the last couple of days, Colin, is U.S. Ambassador to Canada David Cohen uh, was sworn in and, uh, and arrived at post, I think, yesterday. Uh, so so the the skaters are all on the ice now. The, the their their skates are laced up, and and it's important because otherwise um, events will overtake the relationship. So I'm I'm happy to see all of it, and I'm happy to see it in context that includes not just the White House, but also Capitol Hill, not just the Prime Minister, but also cabinet premiers and uh, opposition members. Louise, it was Canada-U.S. relations that took you down to Washington, and I know that you give it a lot of focus, and that I look at you too as the godmother of political Canada. Uh, Scotty's talked about the permanent campaign, which I think is exactly right. We have to keep that pressure on. Is that having an effect? We've got this roadmap. We've still got issues. The Prime Minister highlighted both the Buy American side of things and then line five. Are we making progress? You know, I it, it's it's a misconception. I actually worked here before Canada called, but yeah, <laughs> um, but I did spend a lot of time on, on Canada, US. Um, look, I think one thing that's been striking to me is, is the amount of attention in the Canadian conversation about the electric vehicle tax credit, um, that this is this big emerging issue, the its importance to Canadian industry, to cross-border trade. And yet I don't really think outside of our reporting on it, I haven't really seen it covered that way in the US press. I've seen the main issue um, where you know this provision could end up dying or being killed is has to do with the fact that it requires union labor. And that is something that Senator Joe Manchin in West Virginia, who holds a key vote on this, um, is opposed to. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of attention to the fact that, oh, it ex would exclude, um, you know, electric vehicles made in Canada. So it's just interesting to me that, that this isn't really, I don't know, maybe Scotty, you've seen more attention to, I just haven't seen that breakthrough at all at, in the conversation. Like, oh, we're, we're doing something that's going to hurt our close ally. Maybe we should reconsider it. Like that just, I ha just haven't even seen it break through. So, um, you know, it's, it, I think Scotty's completely right. I mean, this takes so much effort and so much attention on an ongoing basis and so many relationships. The, the conversation here is so tied up in, in other things. I don't think people are thinking about Canada. They're, they're worrying about whether they'll pass a Defense Authorization Act, not whether, you know, Buy American is in it. I, I think that the whole landscape since 2016, since Trump, has completely changed around, um, you know, a more nationalist approach to 
um, the economy to trade. And that wasn't just, I think that's like, like a lasting thing. Um, so that is going to take even more smart strategic thinking for how Canada can, you know, be seen as a part of by North American or ally shoring or any of those notions that keep getting floated around. And, and that's just going to take so much work to constantly elevate that relationship in people's minds and its importance. And, you know, people like Scotty and others, you know, they have their hands full trying to do that. Daryl, uh, Gallup does a poll every year of looking at favorability of other nations and Canada, at least as far as I see it, is always up at the top at about 94%. Canadians don't have quite the same positive feelings towards the United States. And as you point out, took a dip under Trump. How does public opinion play into the fact that the Americans like us more than anybody else, but they also have interests? How does this play into issues like Buy American and like Line 5? I think in the United States, I, you know, I think Louisa nailed it right on. I don't think the Americans are spending an awful lot of time thinking about Canada. And to the degree that they would be thinking about Canada, it would be to their own self-interest. Maybe some of the border states have a, have, have a different view of this. Uh, being liked is always better than being disliked, obviously. Uh, but I don't think it's instrumental in terms of public policy. I don't know that it, it necessarily leads to uh, a lot of great outcomes. But uh, you know, I think the retail aspects of what Scotty was talking about, who gave, a, I think, a brilliant presentation on what's required in order to stay in front of American legislators, legislators is, is, is really what's required here. But having a positive public impression can't hurt. Uh, but, but, you know, when you take a look at the, all of those polls, I mean, we do them, you know, there's a number of them that are out there. It's kind of like the least offensive nations end, end up at the top. I can't think of anything bad to say, so I'm going to just say something good. And, you know, it seems like a nice, clean place. They seem to be nice people. So I guess they're going to play a, a positive role. But if we scrape beyond that and said exactly what positive role they would play, that would probably be a more a difficult question for people around the world to ask or to answer. I guess one thing I'm wondering about, and, and it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds, and maybe Scotty, you have more insight into what's being talked about, but with the newest COVID variant, I mean, what's going to happen to the border? I know there's, it, was, it took a long time to get that border reopened, to get some clear policies to help border communities, to help families reunify, and are we going to handle it in some kind of a better um, more efficient manner going forward, or are we going to regress? Scotty, do you want to speak to that? Because you know, we, we, one of the things that came out of this, when actually looking on the president's website, you've got a supply working group, which sort of came out of the uh, roadmap, but was given more emphasis, as well as a border management group. Uh, these strike me as pretty practical. And I, and I know you've been working an awful lot on border and border management. Sure. Well, and supply chains too. I mean, I, I the question just uh, the question on the border is: Will we get back to um, synchronicity in terms of how we manage our common border? We had synchronicity um, after 9-11-2001 and with with successive border you know coordination policies, and we had synchronicity when we closed the border uh, right when COVID struck the first time. That uh, that went away that synchronicity and that was to Louisa alluded to a lot to great frustration um, among families among border communities and, and the business community frankly so I think um, we're not in a pattern of synchronicity I think we need to get back there and I think this new variant is going to be challenging for everyone hopefully uh, our our kind of um, officials that work on this will talk to each other a little bit more, but they really aren't charged with it, right? The health officials are charged with protecting the health and safety of people in their own jurisdiction. And they want the flexibility to make their own choices about what's best. And their, their instinct isn't to coordinate cross-border. And I, ho I hope we get, I really hope we get back to that. But let me also, Colin, just make one other observation um, Daryl's points are interesting about whether or not Canada is liked or the least disliked. I, I think a more interesting question is how can Canada be relevant, right? Um, and I think, you know, when we're to just sort of wrap this all together, when we're thinking about China, it's dominant in, as Louisa mentioned, on the processing of critical minerals and rare earths. And these are inputs that are used in 
everything from defense goods to solar panels to iPhones. And China has 80% of the world market of the processing of these things. Canada could should take over that position. That would make Canada incredibly relevant. And it wouldn't matter if, if anybody liked them or not, because they would, uh, in a responsible, sustainable, serious way, be able to uh, make a, a contribution to the global economy and to security and all of that um, in a way that is quite meaningful. So um, that's that's how I feel that Canada should be looking at this. And I want to take us back to the, to the Halifax Forum, because you were in government at the time that uh, Peter McKay and Peter Van Praag you know, set this thing up and the government had to put money into it. It's always struck me that this is, especially given the congressional delegation that was led for so many years by Senator McCain, but which has sustained itself, that, that this is a superb opportunity. We talked about, and Scotty and Louisa talked about the Canadian ministers going down to Washington, which is usually the way it works. But this is a rare occasion when you actually get congressional delegation to Canada, it's often the only one that comes every year. Do we need to take this idea into other areas, uh, innovation, technology, beyond defense? Because the, the Halifax Forum really does work in terms of security and defense and gives, gives us captive for a couple of days, senior American congressional leaders. Well, I think the immediate challenge there, uh, Colin, uh, I mean, you're right, this was, uh, I mean, I wasn't, uh, I think you're uh, uh, kindly staying ahead of role in this, whereas in fact, it was uh, Peter Peter's idea, uh, and uh, they're the ones who ran with it. So I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rain on their parade of credit for having seen the opportunity here. Um, the immediate opportunity, of course, is that for 10 years, we've had 11 years now, we've had the Halifax Forum talking about uh, strategic cooperation between or among the democracies. And we have a US president now who's taken this to a sort of head of state and head of government level with a uh, uh, summit of democracies, which you know, could become a continuing, could become a continuing forum. I was struck by how much the US senators who came to the summit this year and were at the summit two years ago, uh, were uh, pushing uh, for the United States, for the Biden administration to incorporate the Halifax Forum as an institution and the processes around the, you know, the, the cooperation around the Halifax Forum uh, at the leaders level. That would be, I would think, if Ottawa was interested in kind of the next step in harnessing the potential of this investment over 10 years and building up this, this multilateral uh, uh, conversation, would be to figure out a way to incorporate the Halifax Forum into the ongoing work of the Summit of Democracies. I think at that point then, if that's a, a possible consolidation, we can figure that out, then you can lever that institutional connection if you want, that synergy between the two uh, uh, efforts into a discussion of not just defense and security cooperation, but what is the trade pattern? You know, Do we really want autarkic kind of supply lines on issues like medical supply and so forth? I don't think that's a feasible alternative for anybody, including the United States. So can you get an alliance of like-minded democratic countries on, on trade issues, on human rights issues, on development issues, and so forth? In a sense, uh, this would be like a, a reinvigoration of, uh, of the OECD or something like that. I think this would be the next extension beyond the quadrilateral dialogue, the uh, US, UK, Australia uh, partnership, whatever they're trying to do with the French, the Alliance Starter in, in the Pacific to take this to a global discussion. And I think that's a, I think that's a natural add-on. And the, the time for that, for Canada to stick an oar in on that and to really lift on that, uh, if that's not mixing metaphors, uh, is right now, like right in the next, I would say three weeks, 2022, if the summit of the democracies works well, and I assume it will, Certainly, the Biden administration's done everything they could to lay the groundwork for it. I admire their effort in this regard. Um, and 2022, 2022 will be the year of consolidating uh, decisions made at that uh, summit. And I, I hope that um, the powers that be in Ottawa have thought through what Halifax and other Canadian institutions would be in that, in that mix. All right, a good way to end. Now I'm going to go backwards and start with you, Ian. What are you reading or streaming these days? I just finished, uh, it was your recommendation in a private conversation call, and I, I'm just finishing uh, the audio book of uh, Fiona Hill's There's Nothing uh, For You Here. Uh, Fiona, of course, a neighbor of ours uh, many years ago, so I, I know her well. I was reading the print 
book uh, in the pre-publication, but I think you were the one who said, no, no, listen to the audio book. And I, I have to thank you for that because uh, listening to her uh, deliver it was, uh, was, was, was infinitely better than the print and the print was well worth reading. So I, I, I recommend the book as, a, as an overview, not just of her time in the, Bush or in the uh, Trump administration, which is interesting. I think the more interesting part of the book is the reflection on the uh, future of uh, opportunities and cultures of opportunities and institutions that give rise to um, opportunity for upward mobility in the democratic countries. I completely agree. Daryl, what are you reading or streaming these days? Uh, I'm, or maybe you're writing <laughs> another book. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be very disappointed if somebody doesn't mention one of mine, but uh, you <laughs> won't, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, I'm actually reading a, 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 a history of... Uh, it's called, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Burden of Responsibility, which is about uh, it's a, like a short three biographies of, of uh, Leon Bloom uh, and uh, Albert Camus and, uh, and uh, Raymond Aron and uh, basically what was happening among French intellectuals after the Second World War. Don't ask me why I'm reading this, <laughs> but I'm, I've always been interested in, in this really sharp political debate that happens between the left and the right in France and trying to understand why uh, you know, uh, how these things interact, because I think a lot of ideas get started there. So I was just, I never really knew that much about it. So I wanted to know more about it. And are you working on another book? Thinking about it. Okay. <laughs> got, a, got a proposal I'm working on right now. Yeah. Louisa, what are you reading or streaming? I've actually been reading Principles uh, by Ray Dalio, which is a really interesting book um, by the founder of Bridgewater. Um, and he, it's interesting to me because um, I've been really interested in meditation and he talks about the role that meditation played in his creativity and, and dealing with, you know, building this massive hedge fund. And um, it's a really interesting part, I think, book about management, business and finance and part personal memoir. Um, in terms of streaming, I'm enjoying uh, our new podcast, Global Insider with Ryan Heath, where he interviews a lot of interesting global figures from the opposition leader in Belarus to um, the U.S. Uh, ambassador to the United Nations and others um, in his very quirky Australian way. Uh, he's the author of our Global Insider newsletter that comes out three times a week and is a uh, sort of uh, one of these hyper-connected, interesting global people who's just has a great sense of humor and a wonderful Australian accent. Thank you. Scotty, last word to you. I'm reading The 100-Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury, China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower. And they're 50 years along, and uh, it's scary as an American, and it's relevant to what we all talk about at Halifax. And, um, and I can't say I'm streaming this, but I hope others are streaming since Louisa plugged Politico's podcast. I'll plug Canusa Street, which is the new Canada US podcast that Chris Sands and I launched during COVID. We just had our first in-person recording of Canusa Street. We talked to Tim Houston, the premier of Nova Scotia, but we take on Canada US issues and hopefully people will, um, you know, so far our listeners are limited to direct family members, I think. <laughs> Scotty, um, I listened to it, and I, I really enjoyed your discussion with Ed Randell about uh, David Cohen. Oh, well, thank you, Colin, my brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks a lot. It's so, good to, it's so good to be with you guys. It is. All right. Well, thank you all, and thanks to listeners for tuning into this episode of The Global Exchange. We were joined today by Scotty Greenwood, Louisa Savage, Ian Brody, and Daryl Bricker. You can find the CJA Network on iTunes and Google Play. If you like the show, do give us a rating. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can also see on the Canadian Global Affairs Institute the program notes for this episode, which will include the books and programs that Scotty and Daryl and Louisa and Ian are reading. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. My thanks to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.